and welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Suford. This is the first podcast of 2022, and I'm excited to start the year with my guests today, who are Kanan Linder and Atif Khan. Kanan is the CEO and founder of Stardust, which is a platform that allows game developers to build in the metaverse by integrating crypto assets into their products. I've known Atif for some years through his previous employer, Facebook, and he recently joined Stardust to lead operations. In this episode of the Mobile Dev Memo podcast, we discuss the appeal of NFTs and other crypto assets and games, the best way to imbue those assets with native utility, how game developers can get started with developing Web3 games, and what the future looks like for Web3 in general. Note that Kanan's audio quality is weak at the beginning of the podcast, but it improves about one quarter of the way in. I also apologize to Kanan for using multiple different pronunciations of his name throughout the conversation. With that out of the way, I present to you, Kanan Linder and Atif Khan. Atif, Kanan, how are you? Doing well. How you doing, buddy? How's it going? I am. I am doing very well. Uh, we are recording this on December thirteenth, so we're kind of winding down the year, and I'm looking forward to some time off, um, as I as I expect that both of you are. Most definitely. Yeah. Have a great holiday. So I. So Atif, I've known you for a number of years. Um, we worked together when when you were at Facebook. Uh, Kane and we met just recently. Uh, you both worked for Stardust. And so I think I would start the conversation by just asking you uh, to introduce yourselves and then it, please uh, introduce uh, the listeners of this podcast to Stardust. Sure, I'll take it away. So. Um... Thank you, thank you, Eric, for the kind intro. My name's Kanan. Um, I came from uh, Pal- I'm from Palo Alto originally. Um, went to college and there did my senior thesis on blockchain and as an undergrad as an indie game developer. Um, so I've always been kind of front edge, looking forward and in towards senior year, uh, which for me is 2017 really got hooked on blockchain and took that into my first job at Bloomberg as a software engineer and just just caught the entrepreneurial bug coming from the Bay Area, had to put both my passions together for creating games and taking this new technology and um, applying it. Um, the kind of point for Stardust, the kind of genesis was I tried to buy my first crypto kitty, did not work, forgot my private key, didn't write it down correctly, couldn't get Ethereum into that wallet to buy one. And it just ended up being such a bad experience that I started thinking to myself, we need to have a way for players of games to be able to buy things and interact with games without needing to know what blockchain is. And more importantly, for game developers to build on the technology without needing to know what blockchain is either. Um, and that takes us into what Stardust is today. Um, there are incredible cloud-based inventory management platforms out there for games, Pragma, Playfab, Nakama, Amazon, Lumberyard, and GameSparks. What Stardust is, is a replacement for those currently siloed Web2 database-based APIs and gives game developers a way to integrate NFTs into their games that they know and understand today through a REST API, but with a backend of Web3. And that's so important because game developers can now leverage their existing developer resources for it. And they don't have to hire additional developers, designers, or bearers to entry to get started. Uh, and yeah, and you know, I, I think Eric, we've known each other for almost five years now, which is, uh, which is crazy. Um, 
so, you know, before this, I spent about eight years at Facebook helping build the games business in North America. And I've worked, worked with almost every large developer in, in North America, a bunch in China and a bunch in EMEA. Um, earlier this year, I decided to, to, to leave Facebook and take some time off and, uh, you know, decided pretty quickly that I wanted to use my, my gaming expertise and to get into blockchain gaming was introduced by a common friend to Kanan and kind of jumped at the opportunity to work with him just based on where free to play mobile is going just obviously with iOS 14, um, you know, the cost of discovery rising, and then starting to see NFTs really take off, you know, it seemed like a huge opportunity to jump in and, and help him build this business. And so I've uh, been here about three months and uh, uh, three months in crypto land is like 18 months. So it's been, uh, it's been a fun ride so far. And you've you've documented that ride um, in a very entertaining way on your LinkedIn. I would recommend anybody listening uh, add Atif as a as a as a friend on LinkedIn or whatever a connection um, and follow follow his uh, his journey uh, because you've been uh, you've been writing updates what like once every couple of days about just things you've learned as like a kind of newcomer to crypto. Yeah, you know, um, so uh, like I, I try to do every Friday morning, like the as, as I got a wrap up every Friday, and it's been really interesting, not just on crypto, but just crypto gaming, also building a startup. You know, I think it was a, it was a, it's a big jump going from Facebook anywhere, right? But to go to like a twelve people startup, it's been really interesting, and it's very, it's been very humbling because obviously, you know, you have to wear many hats and do many things, and I, and I feel like. For me personally, I haven't learned, uh, at least in the last like three years, how much I have in three months, right? How to fundraise, mm -hmm. how to close deals, how to hire, how to build process. Um, and then also just working with, uh, with um, you know, a wide experience of teams, right? Like Kanan is, has a lot of experience on the blockchain side. Our, our CTO, Alan, has like 30 years of engineering experience from, from places like phone.com and Dell. And so uh, just documenting that and... Uh, trying to get others to, to come over to crypto. That's kind of my, my main goal. Got it. Well, it's uh, the, they're, they're very interesting updates. Um, and I'd encourage everyone to, 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 uh, to, to add you as a connection uh, such that they can read them. I want to talk about uh, kicking off the conversation. I want to talk about, you know, you, you know, you, you, you describe, uh, you know, Stardust as a, as a tool to help you like build the meta metaverse. And my, you know, I think if, like that term is really, really nebulous right now. Like, I don't think anybody could, you know, you could ask 10, 10 people and, and you get 10 different answers. My sense is though, that like it gets confounded a little bit by games, right? So like, if I think about, um, you know, my sense of what Mark Zuckerberg thinks the metaverse is, is like this kind of like persistent environment that, you know, involves a bunch of different, um you know content formats and and different ways to interact with people um and part of that part of that one of those vectors of interaction is, is gaming right but if i think about like a gaming studio you know if you think about uh like their role in the metaverse it's it gets muddier right because if i'm in a gaming studio i run one game how do i kind of plug into the metaverse um in a way that supports that idea of like persistence and interoperability um, and I think there's, there is a, like a general understanding that like, well, you know, crypto assets support that, right? Because, and that's, and that's the whole, that's the whole promise of crypto assets is, is, is there's like the, the transparency and the trust um, and the permanence um, and the visibility, right? Uh, and, and, and like the sort of, you know, the, the owner, the sense of ownership. But I, I, one, one question that kind of comes up over and over again with, with, you know, as as I've as I've kind of talked about Web three and and having having kind of been 
you know, a reformed uh, crypto hater, uh, <laughs> you know, is, 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 and, and sort of on, on my sort of, uh, you know, kind of journey to, to, to understanding and, and becoming much more open-minded is, is how, 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 how could that interoperability work when you're talking about games that are very sort of like discrete products um, fitting into like a broader metaverse framework? So, I mean, that's kind of the first question I would pose to the both of you. So the first thing I'll say about blockchain, and I, I think you hit the, the nail on the head there, is blockchain itself um, is the tool to create what we will know is this interoperable ecosystem or what people are calling the metaverse. It is not. So NFTs um, in gaming are just the encapsulation of value creation. And games with open economies are going to be the largest benefactor of this new technology because this blockchain technology does not inherently make a game better, but it takes a game that is built around an open economy and supercharges it to be interoperable with everything else in the blockchain ecosystem. And I think coming back to your question there, games we're already seeing become these experiences in much less discrete products. If you look at games like Roblox, um, you know, Manticore, um, all of these are UGC, Sandbox, right? They're Minecraft. They're all built around user-generated content in interoperable gaming worlds and things that people can build. And I think as the game industry becomes more and more um, toward an experience-based platform, as we're seeing with games already, this interoperability is really going to come in key and blockchain is the correct technology to facilitate that. Um, and so I see this as a trend already being started today where UGC and these experiential games are already coming to the forefront and will become kind of the dominant force in future. So that, do you think that like, so if I think about like a Roblox, right? And, and, and you're right, there is like a totally interoperable or call it like foundational economy there that kind of all the games sit on top of. Is that kind of like a necessary condition? Because you know Roblox is a company, right? But and there's within Roblox, there's the game developers, right, who kind of publish onto Roblox. Is that kind of publishing model um, like a necessary requirement for cases where there is interoperability, or do you see? Because I, I mean, like I, you know, the, the 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 question you might imagine is like I've got, and I mean, this is like you know, just a just a very simplistic example. But let's say that I've got like a sword right in my game that's that's an ownable asset it's an nftable asset right and um you know the idea there would be that like well someone invested time into you know minting that sword and and they had to do whatever they had to do in the in the original game where it was it was sort of generated um became their property was is, is owned by them on on the blockchain and and now they say look i'm tired of this game but i own this i own this asset i want to take it with me right i want to take it with me to the next game um, and that, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of like, uh, 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 sort of like any sort of like prototype that you can think of, of a sword is like, well, it's a weapon. Um, it's got, you know, you've got a whole bunch of properties that you can attach to that. Like what it looks like, the damage it, it inflicts, like it's weight or whatever, any, any kind of, uh, characteristics of a sword. Right. And, and now it, it you know, now you import that into, into this new game that I start playing cause I own it. Um, and, and there's like that, you know, that, that interoperable, uh, you know, sort of notion. Um, and, and now this new game, you know, gets to decide how to, what it looks like or, or what, 
maybe it's nerfed, right? In the new game, like I, I decrease the the power of the sword because it's like that just just the way it fits into the into the the, the sort of generalized um, you know design. Uh, it, you know that that kind of thing that that gets hairy, right? Whereas if I'm like a Roblox and there's just a you know I I, well, I can dictate you know hey well you know what you can get a Robux and that's that that's sort of like um, the common currency across all the games. It's like, is that a necessary condition, do you think? Or could there be, could we, could we get to a place where, no, 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 you can have the sword and swords have characteristics and those characteristics are like recognized and honored, right, in another game. Or there's just some kind of currency conversion and, and that applies to in-game assets like weapons or something where you say, look, okay, well, this, the, the weapon you bought in this game will we'll honor, uh, will recognize that weapon and will honor some kind of conversion system where you know you get half of the damage or or something, or it's or maybe we'll we'll make we'll we'll sort of honor your ownership of that by giving you the item that we think is equivalent in our game, which is there's no swords in our game or a racing game, but you get this kind of car. Like you probably see where I'm going with that. How how do you see that kind of taking shape? Can you have like a totally interoperable open system, or does there need to be a certain level of like consolidation and platform ownership to make that possible? Great question. And I've been uh, playing RuneScape all my life. And I think to your question about Roblox and Sandbox and these other games that are almost publishing platforms in and of themselves, they are the ones best posed to take advantage of blockchain technology and what it brings to an open ecosystem. But I don't think that is just restricted to those games. And other great open world games, EVE Online, um, I mean, Maple Story, World of Warcraft, RuneScape, and even more can take advantage of this technology. It's not required that it allows other, other, excuse me, players or developers to be able to build games on top of the platform. Um, to your question about the, the sword, I think it all comes down to the question of why is that second game um, integrating functionality from that first game? And, and I think there are a couple main reasons. Um, number one, it's an incredible user acquisition tool from that second game. And so they may be disincentivized to lower the benefits of that sword in that second game because it would not be a substantial pull to potentially bring people in from that first to the second. Um, and I think the other reason is players right now earn swords in game and that's all they are and if they need to throw them out for example for a car that is very simple for them to do but as we get into kind of the second level of functionality that blockchain produces for us i.e allowing streamers to cryptographically sign digital goods all of a sudden that sword can't be thrown out because it has a signature from a well-known streamer on it and so that second game really must imbibe that towards characteristics from the first, because that's what players want to hang on to. It's much more mm -hmm. than just functionality, but also the sentimentality of it as well. Um, and kind of the second thing I'll mention, because uh, this is a business use case for the second game to support the sword from the first in terms of they want to attract players, but it's also great for the first game because the first game can start making revenue in perpetuity based upon all of the other games that are imbibing the functionality of the swords, weapons, and armors, and items from the first. Mm -hmm. Because across all those games, that first game 
now is the only person that can sell those items to be used in every single other game. And that transient IP really changes the economics. And we're seeing a lot of brands um, starting to understand that as their assets can transact throughout the metaverse and not just their single siloed into one game. Right, that's a good point. Um, like I, that's a good, that's, a, that's an interesting way of framing that um, conundrum. It's like, well, okay, you know, you don't have to build an environment that accommodates that sort at all, right? You could just, if you're building a racing game, well, then there's just no natural overlap. But if you do, um, that, that creates a pretty compelling case for people to come play your game. Cause like, Hey, I built up this, uh, uh, you know, armory of assets or, you know, this, this, just this collection of assets over time and I want to use them. And so if your game doesn't support those then well, why should I play your game? I want to play the game where I can actually bring my toys with me. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting point. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I guess it, it does become kind of like, uh, you know, a, a sort of like user acquisition strategy at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I've spent I've spent too much money. I'm not going to say it here on a League of Legends skins and, and a yeah. lot of time in that game. Um, and the barrier to entry for me going to another game, and I'm not just saying this because even before I started this company, was I've has I have so much sunk cost in this game. I'm not going to give it up to go to another. If I can decrease yeah. that sunk cost, that is that is incredible. Um, so please, Antif, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's also a really great cross-promotion strategy. Um, you know, you can create alliances uh, across games with, with companies basically this mm -hmm. way. Be a strategic partnership. Again, you can like find ways to actually license that IP from that first game to that second game as a way to actually make that functionality work. There's just a lot of different, different types of revenue streams that a developer can actually uh, start to bring out if they were to, 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 to create this type of like, you know, back and forth IP transient yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and I, right. I just want to point out one thing, Eric, you said about, is this only applicable to games like Roblox that allow people to publish on top of them? Um, I don't think so, but imagine for a publisher how much value this could potentially add to their ecosystem. It, it, it's an incredible amount of value. And just think about that moat that they start gaining because of that value addition. Um, and start thinking about, especially with the IDFA, the positive and negative incentives for people to stay within their ecosystem of games or leave it. And that's extremely important as kind of the industry matures and obviously all of this, um, you know, advertising, uh, retargeting and problems that are going on now with that. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you bring up um, uh, RuneScape. I, so I, I advised on that deal on the, uh, the recent acquisition of, um, of Jagex and um, you know, we, we, and I didn't know that, I didn't know that much about RuneScape, uh, going into it. Um, but like that game just has this core base of people that have been playing for like whatever, 20 years, uh, with like the old school version. And actually one of the bankers, um, was like a little bit younger than me, but he, he was one of those people. And so he gave us like, uh, he, you know, the, the, the deal team was like pretty big and, and, but we had this one, like uh runescape 101 call one day it was like two hours and he just walked us through like you know the the economy of the game and why people stuck around as long as they did you know given that the graphics are you know pretty dated looking and stuff and it, it's just really fascinating and you, and you imagine like well that kind of appeal and that kind of of zeal within the player base like of course they they invested and and, and some of them probably feel like almost tethered to that game for life because well they have invested so much time in it and if they wanted to start over if they like those types of games they know 
the 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 pain of starting fresh, right? And it's like, well, what if you didn't have to? You know what I mean? Like, what if you wanted to upgrade to the latest and greatest and you could bring all your toys with you and it didn't have to be created by the same publisher? I mean, like that is, to me, that's the core appeal um, aside from, like to me, there's the, like the, the, the power. And again, like this comes from, you know, a position I had maybe like as recent as a year ago of being like, this is all, um, I, didn't, I don't want to say like, I thought it was all scam and fraud because I, I didn't, but I thought, I guess I thought it was just like too ethereal. There wasn't enough of like a true, like kind of crisp vision for how this got implemented, which of course, cause it was like nascent, right? But, but as I've, you know, talked to a lot of teams that are developing like web three games and they are implementing crypto and like really, you know, in, in really like sort of uh, efficacious ways into the games, like, well, now I, I understand it a lot better. It just had to take shape. Um, but you can see that, you know, there's like cases like that, that, that make it like, like, like just, just painfully obvious how relevant this idea can be within a gaming community. And now it's just like, well, now we have to kind of like attach the commercial scaffolding to that um, and then build a path to market. Um, but it, I was just, it was fascinating learning about like these, these RuneScape players and like the community and the, and the, and the people that have played that game for so long. Um, okay, uh, so, but kind of, you know, segueing away from that because we're, we've, I, I, I just, you know, reference like kind of game dev teams a couple times. Um, and I want to move in that direction. So you work with web three developers, what, what characteristics do you see shared amongst the most successful or like just the most promising of them? Like, what do you see as being kind of common to the teams that you think or the, or that have proven a lot of traction and, and that, that you believe will be really successful? Yeah. So, um, some of it's kind of like what you just touched on, right? So, so one part of it is, is, you know, we're excited about, uh, teams that have previous game development experience, right? And and specifically have built kind of similar experiences to what you're describing on, on RuneScape, right? The, the ability to have those large uh, economies that have that core audience that can grow it. But I think the biggest thing, that, and, and I think, you know, what you're describing from a year ago where it was the, the industry was nascent and there wasn't as clear of a picture as to what the use case was. I think you're starting to see that because you're starting to see real game designers that have seen success in the industry come into play and start to make these experiences. And so th that's what we're really excited about, right? Like we want to work with people that have had that game design experience and are, are creating a new type of game based on what this new, you know, blockchain gaming uh, atmosphere is, right? This environment, this new kind of canvas that they can build on. Um, I would say, you know, what we've seen for the last like six to nine months has been really like, I think not a lot of game designers come into, into play. So I think as that gets settled out, we'll start to see a lot more examples of success. Frankly, there hasn't been a ton of really successful like blockchain games outside of Axie, right? Because if you look at them, a lot of them have done like NFT sales uh, and token sales and haven't launched games yet, but we'll, we'll know more. But I think the other part is kind of, and I think Kanan, you could probably touch on this is, is, is the type of game designers that built those games from like, you know, 2000 to 2006, you know, those, those large scale economies uh, kind of similar to RuneScape. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and I mean, going back to something, Eric, you said, I mean, I mean, I learned how to, you know, if someone said trimming armor or doubling money in RuneScape, like <laughs> that was the first place I'd been scammed, uh, you know, and so yeah. much. And I think a lot of, and you know, why so many of us have grown up playing that game and have learned innumerable life lessons from that game. I think going back to the game design question, I think Atif spoke to it. We're seeing a lot of the 
things that are best imbibed by blockchain-based games very reminiscent of games of the past because it's these and we'll talk about more you know tokenomics and really what blockchain and open open economies are doing which is allowing game developers to monetize time being spent in their game monetizing producers instead of right now and iaps monetizing consumers um that really speaks to an era of game that comes from the open world eve online days um, of, of way back and not the necessarily kind of mobile as you mentioned earlier discrete product games that have existed today yeah that's um you bring up an interesting point so my and and i kind of have a post you know sort of buried in my um drafts folder about this but like my i've kind of like a thesis around web3 which is that you know there's like it's 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 games evolved in a different direction um than what people previously thought games were right and we've seen that happen before right so like my general you know kind of uh, you know, delineation of these periods is like you had kind of AAA con well, okay, pre AAA console, you had like the people that were, you know, playing games on, you know, Apple II, like, you know, the, 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 the you, you go talk to like John, you know, hear John Carmack speak or something or, or John Romero. And like they built, they had to, you know, build games on like, you know, these, these old school, uh, you know, computers where, you know, they, they had to like, uh, whatever, like load the, uh, the 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 code and you know into memory on disk and stuff and like that. So so but but starting from like if you think about like AAA console right and going back to like call it you know the NES or or, or Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis or whatever you know gaming was for uh, gaming was an activity partaken uh, in by people that had a lot of time and a lot of money right gaming you know ate up a lot of time just playing through a game and, and you need a lot of money you need to buy the console you need to buy the games they were 60 bucks pop right and then kind of moving into free to play in the west gaming you know the the, the sort of like the, the core the core group of people that supported the games supported the development of the games were people that had more money than time right like the, you know the, the the kind of think about like the the free-to-play economics it's, it's driven by whales people that didn't want to wait right like oh, there's, there's like weight gating and that's how you support a free-to-play economy and so that well you can just pay to sort of bypass that and my sense is that web3 and but that, the, the demographics there changed it, it wasn't the sort of those games were not built for the core demo of AAA console games right um, they were built for a totally different demographic and it, it shifted what it meant to be a gamer. A gamer looked different now than it did when you thought about gamers for AAA console, right? And it, it was primarily women, um, but like anybody that owned a smartphone. So like these sort of like income levels changed. Now the, the sort of the, the commercial side, it was driven by like the whales, um, but, but, but the sort of DAO side of it, the, the sort of broad appeal side of it uh, was, was, a, was a demographic that was, was sort of much broader than what the, what the AAA gaming um, uh, uh, you know tried tried to speak primarily to now with uh, with uh, uh, Web three gaming that sort of demo uh, appeal changes again and again the demo size is much bigger you know you think about now who are primarily playing Web three games well as people in the developing world you know in, in Southeast Asia and my I, I wonder and and they have you know more time than money, right? Those are the people that's, and it's just like you said, you know, the economy of free to play is driven by consumers. The economy of free to play or of web three is driven by, uh, you know, creators or builders. Right. Um, and now I, I wonder like how, how does that change who builds games? Right. Because again, if you're talking about building for a completely different demographic than you did with free to play, does that, does that make, does that turn like the sort of, 
um, you know, the, the, the kind of the hotspot or the hub of, of Web3 gaming into like a, a, like a Southeast Asian, uh, you know, sort of nexus versus like, you know, Western Europe, which is kind of like the nexus for, uh, for free to play game development now and like kind of, you know, the, the West Coast, of the US for, for AAA console. I, and, and then if that does change that, like, well, then, you know, I guess, you know, the question is like, well, can you, can you capture some of that as a Western dev, not having those same sensibilities as, as dev in the, in the developing world? Or what do you need to do as a Western dev? So I guess the, the, question, the question I have, just to distill, distill this into an actual question instead of a rant, is uh, what kind of demographic trends do you see taking root for Web3? Do you think that the, the sort of the demo focus that we see now is, is something that's gonna be pervasive and, and permanent? Or do you see that as like just something that emerged kind of organically and will shift over time? Um, and and you know and do you agree with me? Yeah, I I'll um I'll I'll jump in and Caden, please um, jump in. I think from from my perspective, just to take a step back, you know, like my my parents from Pakistan, uh, from from a third world country, and just you take a look at kind of what you described, where people in these third world countries have a bunch of time, and now you know if they're making a few hundred dollars a month, they're making an incremental say fifty to a hundred dollars a month that's like life changing for them, right? Especially if you have a ton of time. And frankly, like a lot of these, you know, third world countries, you see that, you know, there's large playing populations even for free to play, right? Like, you know, uh, they're playing a lot of these free play to games. People just, developers aren't monetizing them as much as they are say tier one English speaking countries. So now you flip that, you flip that around that paradigm on them and now they'll still play those games but now they'll be able to supplement their income in a meaningful way that could change the trajectory of kind of, of, of their family's livelihood. And so just from that perspective, you know, having, um, having seen that from, 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 where, from where my parents come from in, the, in that part of the world, that's like super exciting. Right. Like that's just like a, it's just a huge paradigm shape change on that side. I think, um, you know, what you describe from a location standpoint, right, with Western Europe for free to play and in the West Coast for a triple A, I think, you know, pre pandemic, you could say, hey, maybe there's a location. I think what we're seeing is that like everybody's remote and everybody's all over the world. Right. And it's actually been pretty cool to see from our perspective, dev teams that have one person in Singapore, one person in Spain, one person in the US, and that's the executive team and they're kind of all over. So I think that 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 remote first uh, post pandemic uh, work culture, I think is gonna is gonna be good for gaming developers, right? Because you're gonna have very diverse teams that are all over the world that can represent kind of the demographics that they're building for. And that's kind of what we're seeing, right? Like we're, we're seeing teams spread out throughout the world. And, and so I don't think there's gonna be like a location or an area that will maybe dominate what works best because of that remote first kind of post-pandemic work culture. But I think what you are going to see is a bunch of games that are going to be more well-represented for those demographics because you have people all over the different parts of the world. Uh, and I think that's really going to be important as this business scales, because I think what you'll see works in one third world country might not necessarily work in another third world country, very similar to the way like free to play mobile works right now in, in, in Asia, for example. Right. And so having people all over the place, all over the world is actually going to help you build better games and better game economies. Right. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, that's kind of how I think about it uh, based on what we've seen. And I'll just add to that with saying the reason I believe that 
we're seeing so many third world countries um, like the Philippines jump into games like Axis is play to earn means a couple of different things in a couple of different contexts. And I think here it really means the globalization of work in a digital domain. Um, there is time value arbitrage right now in sending physical goods to China to be made for you know X dollars a day and then selling them in the US. And, and this is really the same thing with our game time right now. We are outsourcing our game time to these third world countries to where that is a livable and a great hourly wage for them and using consumers in the US right, to really make that a two-sided marketplace of producers and consumers. And I think going to your question surrounding game designers and how they can build a scalable game for the future. And if you look at games like RuneScape or World of Warcraft and potentially why they've existed for so long, even with a great market, is that there are huge um, and very well-built economies around an equal or great ratio of producers to consumers. And as we're seeing now with Axie, is the producers almost outscale the amount of consumers. Um, that's when the economics in game become a, a little unsustainable because the cost per you know hour of earning goes down, and I'm sure producers will leave and it will you know retract and revert to the mean. Um, but this is this is game design that for forever has been implicit in many of the open world games that now we're seeing come to a forefront um, in making sure it's explicit in how we design well-rounded and circular-based economies with a correct amount of consumers, producers, and item sinks. Right. I think, you know, that's that's one of the, you know, that's, that's kind of one of the questions that I grapple with, right? Um, just from an investor's perspective, right? Because like, this, none of this has to like. I, I feel like there's there's always and and especially it's it's very like Silicon centric Silicon Valley centric view of the world. But it's like, okay, well, what's what's next? What 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 sort of extinguishes all the oxygen in the room? Like and and so so okay, so Web three is the next thing, and and that'll be the next that'll that'll be what gaming is next. And like, well, that's never been the case. There's the, the this idea of gaming has always just evolved or like expanded. Um, into into sort of different variants, like the, the the kind of idea of who a gamer is, isn't like this singular sort of uh, demographic average, right? It's it's multiple different uh, contexts that you can game in, and and Web three is one more, right? It's the newest one, but it doesn't replace all the others. It doesn't displace them. It just exists in addition to them, just in the same way that free to play games existed in addition to console free to play didn't kill console um web3 won't kill free to play but it expands the universe of who plays games and therefore who is a gamer it's they you know they, they behave totally differently they have totally different motivations potentially um but that they're nonetheless still a gamer right and you can still service them with the great product um that and that product won't look the same as a free to play game and i feel like that's that's the hard thing that's that's that kind of hard um you know, that, that uh, uh, kind of adjustment to make into your mental model. It's not either or, right? It's, it, you know, there, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's sort of this, this, uh, this expansion of the concept that, that Web3 um, kind of allows for and, and is, is facilitating now. Um, I want to kind of jump back to what we were talking about before um, with Web3 game development, because like, Atif, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you that, you know, my sense is like when I've seen this, be thoughtful and be really exciting. Um, it's been from veteran game devs that know how to build a game and they've kind of taken that red pill. It's like, I, no, I don't, this doesn't, 
what I'm going to build is not necessarily the thing that will appeal to all the old, to, to, to the, to the audience that I, I, that my, my previous products appealed to. It's, if it's, it's going to potentially appeal to a much larger audience and that's, what's really exciting about it, but that audience is going to be different than the previous audience. And I guess my question to you is, is what advice, so let's say, a, a, you know, like some, a game dev came to you and, and he or she has whatever, 20 years experience and they, the first job was at Blizzard and then they moved to Zynga or whatever. And then they were at some other like fabulously successful uh, free-to-play game companies. Look, I, Atif, I want to get into Web3. What advice would you give them? Or, or yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, so I think, first of all, is, you know, it, it was wild. If you remember, Eric, like three or four years ago, especially in the US, a gaming dev couldn't raise an institutional round right? Like VCs would, would not touch it, right? And then Andreessen came in and then Andreessen started. And now you've got like, I don't know, Ken, we got like 12 to 13, you know, $60 million plus gaming funds, if, if, if not more, which is super exciting, right? Because that's really going to spurn the, um, the, the success of this industry. And so I'd say the first thing is like, who's your investor, right? Um, where, where, where's the gap uh, in, in your knowledge base as you transition into, into this blockchain gaming uh, ecosystem? And can you find an investor that can help you navigate that both from a gaming perspective and also from a blockchain perspective? I think it's extremely important. Um, the second thing is, I think what we're seeing is uh, people are automatically just launching NFT, 10K NFT sales and uh, tokenizing their business before they even really have a, a roadmap for what their game looks like. And I, I think, wait on that. Really figure out what the game design is, figure out what the roadmap is, how you're actually gonna incorporate those NFTs into the game design, into the gameplay. How are you gonna um, think about the token economy? I think what we're seeing developers do is kind of get really excited about the potential uh, of, of tokenizing and NFTs and uh, doing that early and then losing traction on what the actual game design and how to incorporate that is. And so I, I think that's the biggest thing. And, and it's tough right now, right? Because you look at some of the amounts that are being raised with some of these NFT drops and these token, token offerings or IDOs, whatever you'd like to call it. And they're insane amounts of money. But if you really wanna build a long lasting game, you gotta focus on the game design. It, it really comes down to that. And, and I think, not getting swept away in the NFT and the token side, I think in the long run will really help you build a game that drives a really large, successful, vibrant community, because that's really what these games are going to be, vibrant communities uh, that'll, that'll last three to five years. Uh, and, and you'll make that money up in the long run anyways. I'd say that's the second thing. And then the third thing, which is something that we're experiencing is like, get ready to hire really great people because uh, the people that you hire are really going to help you get to the vision that you want, right? Identify the different types of key hires that you need. And uh, as soon as your funding hits, you'd be ready to basically execute on that hiring plan. Those are the three things that I would, that, 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 that I've been specifically telling everybody as we talk to on the developer side and Kane, I don't know if there's anything that you want to add there. Um, yeah, just probably add one on top of that, the game design specifically, if you look back at something like the Diablo three auction house, the, the reason, I mean, there are many articles written about why that did or didn't work and, and what happened there. It made the game feel like at the end of the day, it wasn't a game, you know, that it was denominated in dollars. It made it feel as though the actual game itself was just a stock trading game with you know some some gamification around it and i think it's really important to as you design this game 
understand who your long-term customer base is, because while that may be one of the biggest customer bases today and it'll go raise you a bunch of money, we've seen some great economic designs where the fungible token in a game and the currency in a game isn't actually on blockchain, only the NFTs are. And that creates an economy in which the UGC and kind of the value creation people uh, that people are creating in game has some tangible real world value outside of the game economy, but it keeps that inside game economy very fresh, vibrant, and very core focused on the game and not imbibing a lot of those things that come when you put dollars and cents directly into a video game. And so I think from that perspective, thinking about, you know, how is this going to be a billion dollar game in five years instead of five months is actually going to do you more good and it's going to allow you to build a stronger and more sustainable company overall. Well, I, I mean, I'm totally on board with that. I think, um, you know, you touched on a really interesting point is, which is that, you know, the, cause, cause like having the, you know, that you've got, and I, I wrote an article about this couple, couple of months ago, it was just like some thoughts around how do you, how do you, how do you actually, um, how do you anchor that the real world value to the game assets and, and control that in a way that the players actually like sort of, you know, obviously there's ownership within an NFT, but, it, but in, 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 a, in a way that where the players, kind of, um, you know, dictate the, 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 the parameters or, or you know, the, the boundaries of the economy. And that is tough to do. To design a system that allows for that is, is very difficult. And I think like, what scares me a lot is like, when I hear about projects where like, um, a couple of really great engineers and they say, hey, we love, uh, we're really excited by, uh, you know, the possibility of crypto, let's build a game. Cause that's an easy pathway to a big consumer audience. And it's like, no games are very, very difficult to make. And like, you know, I, my, my sense is that, you know, what, what, you know, web three, I was talking about expansion, you're expanding the market, you're creating a, you're creating a, a whole new audiences for these games. Um, but you're also expanding the definition of what it means to be a game designer, because I feel like the economy design piece um, is, is, is so much more demanding than it, what than it would be even for like a free to play game. And, and those are even deceptively, uh, difficult to do. So I, I guess like maybe kind of as we, um, you know, we've got five minutes left. Talk to me about that. Like how, because there's kind of, let's say I have two, two, two discrete questions here. One is like, how are you seeing that play out with the teams that you work with? Like, you know, are they hiring actual economists? Or are they hiring people with PhDs in, in, in economics? Or how are, how are they solving that problem? And then two, um, you know, when, when you, uh, you know, when you think about that, uh, you know, from the player perspective, like, I feel like there's so much more fun that gets unlocked, like when, and not, not in the real world money part of it, but just like in that extra complexity, like, you know, that with some of these games, they made the money because people just love, like some of these you know, free to play games that made the most money were basically just like spreadsheets with like a simple, you know, uh, UI, right? Because people love that. They love the, the, the sort of upgrade trees and they love the, 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 the sort of like the ability to make the decision of like, where do I allocate my points, my skill points or whatever. And, and like, does that, does that in itself, that complexity, does that unlock, um, or let, don't call it complexity, but that depth, the economic depth, does that unlock a whole new sort of like vector of fun on, on, the, on the player side? I'll, 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 take, I'll take the first question uh, on, on the, on the um, economist side. So I, I, I think what you're going to end up having is kind of like a, a three-pronged kind of um, 
production team for games. You're going to have a game designer, an economist, and a data scientist. And I think they're going to have to come up with kind of the answer together, kind of like a pod. I don't think you're going to be able to have one, one person, you know, solve this because like you said, it's a very complex problem. You're going to need a little bit of game design, a little bit, bit of like economics slash tokenomics, whatever you'd like to call it. And then you're going to need to look at uh, data on a pretty real basis and kind of monitor that. Um, I, I definitely think it's a great idea on the economist side. We haven't heard anybody talk about that, but and I'm, I'm frankly surprised for exactly the kind of reason that you're talking about. But I think as we get further down the line and people get closer to game launches, you'll either hear that they have had an economist the whole time or that they're starting to employ one as it gets closer to, to launching. Yeah, I, I have to I have to second that. I think some games get it right by accident and just happens with laissez-faire economics, right? Uh, but I think a lot more of the longer term games in this industry will have pre-built loops, right? At the end of the day, these open world games are economies themselves, no different than a real world economy. And they must be, they must be targeted and designed like, like a real world, um, you know, like a government would, would design an economy, no different. Um, couple, couple things to your second point there. Um, I think one of the things we're going to see, and this taps into what Octav said about data scientists, is um, we see a lot of games right now become so successful um, because of A, how the uh, you know economy within the game works, B, how the uh, positive uh, kind of reinforcement in the game works as a science skill points, and C, uh, user acquisition. And user acquisition is a very important tool. Um, and I think what we're seeing in this industry is a little bit of the breakdown of the stats we've used in the mobile space, you know, ARP DAOs, ARP MAUs, you know, LTVs really take on a different life of their own uh, because they're, you know, what is the, you know, inherent brand value of a sword that can transfer into another game? How do you determine, you know, that, that lifetime revenue of that user if they're using that sword in a different game? How does that, you know, what about a marketplace, you know, person that's trading, not really playing the game, but generating you secondary market fees. Um, I think we are very early on, almost too early to tell how uh, these games really um, track, incentivize, become so successful, whether it's something inherent in the game, but it all comes down to better data. And that's the most important part of this. Better data, how to use that data to better deform decisions in the game, better attract users. And it's a it's kind of a black box right now because there's so many additive things to just the normal stats we're using in the mobile space that will really take us to the next level um, in the next kind of three to five years in this Web3 gaming eco ecosystem. Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting point, you know, because there's a lot of hype around um, you know, the chains and NFTs and the blockchain games, a massive opportunity in Web 3.0 is really like who builds a, a fantastic analytics layer for a lot of these games, right? Who builds that infrastructure? I think there's a few players that are thinking about it, but I think over the next few months, you know, one or two could really take the lead and build a billion dollar or $5 billion business, depending on if they tokenize it or not very quickly. Um, guys, this was a fascinating conversation. How, how do people reach out to you? How, how does a veteran game dev that, that wants to build uh, web three products, how do they, how do they get in touch and, uh, and, and, uh, how do they, uh, how do they, uh, grow, uh, build a, build a $5 billion business <laughs> from that? Um, so, uh, just jump on, jump on our website, fill out a contact us form. 
Um, we give every single person uh, a, a live demo and we give them access directly into um, our solutions engineering uh, team and we usually respond within 12 to 24 hours. And unfortunately, our CEO, Kanan, and our CTO are still, uh, still answering questions in the Discord channels, but that's the kind of service that we want to give to every single developer. So uh, reach out, reach out that from there and somebody will be in uh, contact shortly. And that's uh, stardust.gg. And uh, 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 Kane and I apologize for, for vacillating back and forth between uh, pronunciations of your name. Uh, but, uh, but thank you both uh, for spending the time with me today. Um, it was a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate it, Eric.